0: Welcome to episode 54 of The Photo Show. Uh, We are sponsored today by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program, chaired by Charles... Thank you, Charles Traub. (laughs) Chaired by Charles Traub. (laughs) (laughs) So our guest today is Amani Willett, who just published a book called The Disappearance of Joseph Plummer. Uh, and so we had a, a really great conversation about that, except that I was alone because, uh, uh, yes, yes, Kai, you got stuck.
1: I did. And, you know, uh, life life happens and uh, I couldn't make the recording, but uh, other obligations. But I was familiar with the work and I'm I'm excited to hear what you guys spoke about.
0: Yeah, I, it really was a, a great conversation. And we talk a lot about sort of Amani's upbringing and his relationship with his father, which has a lot to do with the book. Uh, and you'll hear about that when we talk about it. But um, Kai, you actually just went to an event the other night, yes? Yeah,
1: well, th- uh, thanks to the Ragabir Singh show, um, Modernism on the Ganges, that's open now at the Met Broyer. That's how you're supposed to pronounce it, apparently, <laughs> Breuer, <clears throat> I, if you didn't know. And uh, because of that, there's uh, been a number of events and uh, other things happening in the city that are related to uh, Ragabir. And last night... Hosted on uh, Barnard's campus, which is, you know, part of Columbia University, there was a panel discussion, uh, they had three panelists, uh, Glenn Lowry, the uh, director of Museum of Modern Art was there, and he was, he had known Ragabir Singh since he was a grad student up at the Fogg Museum in, at uh, Harvard, so he had known Ragabir for a very long time, and uh, a fellow photographer, a friend of his was there, Ram, whose last name I don't remember right now, and he um, and Max Kozloff, the uh, critic slash photographer, writer, was also there, again, telling stories about uh, their time with Ragabir, including traveling to India with him. And so it was interesting. I We got some nice insight, including... That there was some contentious event at Columbia back in the seventies, and Ragabier was there, and the people stormed the stage to get to some of the other panelists, and he literally beat people off with his Nikon <laughs> camera, hitting them on the head to knock them back. So there you wow. go, the Nikon. The Nikon can be used as a uh, defensive weapon, apparently.
0: So it's, it's ram ramen thank you yep Yep.
1: uh there was also a great moderator there and i forgot her name but she uh she knew ragabir since the 70s uh coming by columbia and she told some yeah great stories about him i think one interesting thing that came out is that uh ragabir is also being kind of rediscovered in india with this uh new generation of indian photographers coming up there they're kind of uh beginning to relook at their own history of, you know, photographers who weren't just uh, working in journalism or anything else, but the, who are, you know, making work outside of that uh, milieu. And now, now you knew him, right? You met him through Tom Roma. So I did. Tom Roma. I did.
0: I, I knew Ragaber through Tom Roma. Uh Bear would often come to the United States and need a you know, either a place to stay or crash or, but, but, uh, for me it was uh, a ride. And so I would get mm. a call from Ragabir that, you know, he wanted to go here and there and I loved it. Um, you know, he would, uh, hop in my little four speed, uh, manual Toyota Tercel and I would take him around places and then he would, uh, take me to great, uh, restaurants, Indian restaurants and all. And, uh, nice. yeah, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun and it was a great experience, a, a, and a great way to, Get to know him, just sitting in the car and talking and listening to him, both uh, criticize and uh, and uh, praise other photographers. Um, mm-hmm. There's also a Howard Greenberg event coming up on October 26th with uh, work by Ragabir Singh. Uh, I think it also includes two other photographers. I don't have that information in front of me, so sorry about that.
1: Yeah, and if you so, if you're in the city any time between now and January second, plan on going by uh, the Met Breuer and seeing the show. I mean, yeah, some of this some of this work has you know, probably never been seen in the U.S., and some of it hasn't been on display in a long time. I mean, it's been a I I can the last time I remember going to any kind of show that had Ragabier's work was in New Jersey in probably 2007 or eight mm. or something.
0: Wow. Oh, so I have that information in front of me now, um, and I should have remembered this. So the Howard Greenberg show, October 26th uh, at 6 p.m., the reception, has William Gedney and Kenro Isu also in the show.
1: Oh, great. Yeah, And of course, he was very close with uh, Bill Gedney and uh, stayed with him a lot of times when he came to New York Mm -hmm. and traveled in India with him.
0: Oh, that should be great. Yeah. So um, just to be fair and and (laughs) naming names here, uh, the, the moderator... And I'm go- i will butcher the name, but the moderator for the um, the event that you went to was uh, Gowri Viswanathan, and uh, I apologize for my pronunciation, but I did want to mention the names.
1: Yeah, she was great. Yeah. Anyways, I look forward to hearing the show.
0: Yeah. Uh, th- again, it's uh, Amani Willett, and um, we also will have links to how you can purchase his book. And thanks again to the School of Visual Arts. So uh, enjoy the show, everyone, and we'll talk soon. <laughs>
2: Brooklyn from Park Slope, where oh. I've lived for about 10 years. Oh, where, yeah. were, you, where were you before that? Well, I've been all over in Brooklyn. I moved to Brooklyn in 97, lived in Fort Greene, then went to uh, Carroll Gardens, uh, over to Crown Heights, back <laughs> oh, yeah. to Fort Greene, and then yeah. Park Slope. So <laughs> <laughs> as neighborhoods change, you moved along. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And as your life changed, yeah. You moved I, I moved to Park Slope. Without kids, and then somehow had kids. So. <laughs> <laughs> did Did you grow up in New York then? No, I grew up actually in Cambridge, Mass, and lived there my whole life until college, and then after oh. college moved to New York. Yeah, you did your undergraduate at. I did it at Wesleyan University Wesleyan, in yeah. Connecticut. Um, I didn't study photography in college. so It wasn't until much later that I mm-hmm. went the photo route. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, Wesleyan was a was a great place to to go to school. Oh, cool. Yeah. What was your uh, undergrad degree in? I actually was an undergraduate. My degrees were in history, psychology, and African American studies. Wow! And yeah, I sort of created my own triple major. <laughs> um, but it was interesting. Actually, by the end of college, I was I was sick of using words to talk about the ideas. You know, I, I didn't want to write another paper. And just in my last week of college, I happened to be in the campus bookstore and saw Eli Reed's Black in America book. It had just come out. And being an AFAM major, I sat down and I was shocked. I was looking through the book and I was thinking, wow, there's a whole other way to talk about these issues that I've been writing about for years. And that really impressed me and I, I decided that I wanted to start pursuing photography at that point.
0: When you say you were writing about it, you mean as a student or? Right, as
2: a student in my, for my thesis. Oh,
0: okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then how did that uh, transition to photography?
2: Well, I looked up Eli Reed's information, saw he was a Magnum photographer, wondered what that was, and um, when I moved to New York, I looked up Magnum and got an internship at Magnum when ah. I first moved here huh. in the in 1997. Yeah, and I spent about four years working there mm-hmm. at Magnum, and so that was really my first photographic education was being at Magnum, and it was such a treat to be able to look through the archives after work every day, you know, stay late and and learn and look at all those contact sheets and just really see how the photographers thought processes worked and you know you could see how they got to the shot and you know where they were meandering and and what and and what it took and you know obviously you know people put out the images that are the image that they feel in their mind is that best represents the idea but there's a whole lot of work often that goes into getting that that one image and it was important to learn that um Early on,
0: well, I mean, were you there talking to the photographers, talking to the people who work there? And then, I mean, because it, it, that's a, in, in some ways, um, you know, you're educating yourself about photography, but you're also in this really rich environment.
2: Yeah, I mean, really all of the above. There are, you know, there are definitely some photographers who are more open to mm. engaging in the <laughs> people who work there than others. Um, but yeah, that was a huge part of it, being able to show work to those people. Some people really took an interest. Talking to the people who were dealing on the day to day, it was a much different environment back then in an agency. You know, there were, it, it was digital was just oh. on the horizon, so it was you know lots of printing in the dark room. Um, you know, photographers would bring their film in, they would you know, there, and then we had a, a couple of master printers who were printing everything, and then uh, really sending out distributions by mail to different picture agencies and different magazines as dist- they call them distros, and that's what yeah. it, that's how they got the word out and my, i think my second year there someone said hey can you take this slide and scan it and i <laughs> learned about scanning it was a little polaroid scanner one of the first uh slide scanners oh ends. yeah and i became um one of the, the people who oversaw all their their digital printing eventually so it was a good place to be as a nice you really were there
0: so right on right as it uh, happened yeah and um I, I, so I worked in a, a science stock photography agency for many years. Okay, at, when it was all film, and and I remember, I mean, it that, back then you were packaging. You know, duplicate slides and mounting things, and uh, you know, taking care of the um, the insurance and the mailings and everything. And I mean, you would you would send out all these photos, and then they they'd have to send them all back to you. And everything had tape and marks all over it. And, and yeah, it, the dupes, right, yeah, they call them. <laughs> it all changed uh, very quickly.
2: And then often you would send things out, at
0: least with the prints, and people wouldn't
2: send them back. And That's it was right. trying to. <laughs> Right, trying to track them down. And, you know, some of the prints were quite nice and people Uh didn't want to send them back. Yeah, (laughs) you were
0: always trying to figure out how can I enforce the agreement that they had to send it back. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: uh, But I also (laughs) learned early on that Kodachrome was uh, particularly hard to film to scan. It's so thick and it's such a beautiful film. It has such a different color palette and grain
0: structure and everything else. And I I think later on they came out with... um, Basically, uh, uh, different plugins just to do Kodachrome. I think I that's right. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, and that seemed to be what most of the Magnum
2: people were shooting was Kodachrome, and when they were mm-hmm. shooting slides. So that's what, of course, what I started shooting was yeah. Kodachrome, and I loved it. I mean, it had such a different look and feel. And moving to digital, that was for me one of the hard things to overcome was like, you know, that really rich three-dimensional look of the Kodachrome yeah. and sort of the thinner look of. Of digital
0: and of course, uh, you know Ragabir Singh has a show right now up at the That's Met, right. and, and there's no, another show coming up at Howard Greenberg that mm-hmm. includes Ragabir, and he shot Kodachrome um, 25, I think, often, wow. uh, if not 64. But then he made the, had those dye transfer prints made, and everything was just so like gorgeous and lush and uh, seamless and everything else. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait to see that show actually. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm excited <laughs> for that. <laughs> so when you get to Magnum, you're you're you said you were showing them photographs. So, who taught you how to use a camera?
2: Uh, who taught me how to? That's a good question. I think a friend of mine, the summer before I moved to New York, sort of started t- teaching me about how to, ap- you know, about apertures and shutter speeds and all that. But I, I remember it was Paul Fusco at Magnum said, "Oh, you got to get a, a Leica." Of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course, on and the a vest or no? On the, on the huge sums I was making at. <laughs> magnum as an intern i <laughs> saved up and eventually found a a was an m3 uh used
0: uh, it, was,
2: it was uh yeah something like that i can't remember <laughs> and eventually moved to an m6 but uh yeah that's that was the camera i started using and it was you know it's a great camera it's small it's easy to carry around i had my camera with me all the time back in those days mm-hmm. and you know th- there was that excitement when you're learning photography too you know of not being able to see exactly what you're getting and you know, the time you had to wait and, until you got your film back. And then it was like Christmas, you know, mm-hmm. it was like looking, <laughs> opening the box of either, you know, Kodachrome or looking at the contact sheet you got back and, and then but trying to learn. So there was a lot of, I remember, uh, recording exposures and shutter speeds in a notebook as I went along so I could try to remember what they were and, you know, what I should be doing differently mm-hmm. for next time.
0: But so you um, you studied uh, African-American studies. Which means that you know the the idea of race has been an, an interest for you mm-hmm. uh, since before photography. Yeah, right? very much so. Very yeah. much so.
2: I'm I'm biracial. I'm half black and I'm half white. So the issues of race have always been you know really interesting to me, especially in America, where it often is talked about in black and white. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, growing up, my my mother at an early age she wanted to look for books to read to me when I was little. And she was shocked that she really couldn't find anything about black kids or mixed race kids. And so she actually started a bookstore, one of the first of its kind in the country, that dedicated to uh, multicultural children's books. Oh, wow. And so from a very early age, it's, you know, those ideas have been in my head and, you know, contending with identity and um, representation Mm -hmm. and, and the way society has dealt with with those issues and way yeah. America we've dealt with those issues so it has played a big part in some of the projects I pursue not everything but you know it's it's definitely one of the things I've thought about and I you know in going through grad school too and thinking about the canon and who we who we remember within the photography community and who's important and all those sorts of things I, you know it's very much tied up in race and politics and identity as well
0: uh, not too long ago we had Aaron Turner on the show who runs the Twitter account uh, Photogs of Color? And mm-hmm. and and we talked about the the idea of the canon of the history of photography, of the photographers who everybody claims to be inspired by, or you know, and and how then, you know, how then do you? Um, Become aware of photographers beyond that, you know ha- what's the path to that, and that's that's what part of what he's trying to do is is change that a little bit, and
2: yeah it's a noble task, yeah, and it's a <laughs> difficult and noble task, I mean yeah
0: yeah, I've always been
2: in some ways suspicious of the canon, mm-hmm. you know for those <laughs> reasons, like who's canon, you know what are the terms, why are these people revered and so I wouldn't say I, in, in some ways, I haven't idealized mm. different artists or photographers in that way. I, you know, there's lots of photographers I like and respect, but I don't think of, you know, that there, that there are a few masters or right, anything right. like that. And I think it, there's a lot of people making small contributions everywhere. Yeah, you know?
0: and, and even within the canon itself, there's there's a split. You know, mm-hmm. I uh, we're sitting in Charles Traub's office right now recording, and we, we had Charles on the show, and... You know, he talked about even the, the split between the MoMA people and the Light Gallery people. and Exactly. <laughs> and, <yeah>. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's a lot of little tribes that don't get along. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so y- are your parents still with us? Yes, they there? are. They both, guess, yeah?
2: they both still live in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom had her bookstore for about 10 years, and then other people like... I think at that time, was it Barnes and Noble? Sort of, oh. no, the, the sort of bigger bookstores first, caught on to those ideas. And, first
0: beginning of the end there. Yeah. yeah.
2: And, and she went out of business, but uh, kept consulting um, about children's literature. Oh, uh, wow. Um, and my dad, he's a, an epidemiologist. Wow. That, so they, yeah, they live in the Boston area.
0: And your mother's African American, your father is white. Yeah, my father's white. They mm-hmm. both grew
2: up in Michigan, and they actually both grew up as Quakers. And they actually met at a Quaker meeting. And so, yeah, some of my previous work and soon to be uh, future work (laughs) (laughs) is on the Underground Railroad and Underground Railroad sites. And that came out of an extension of, you know, having my 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 biracial identity, but also the fact that my parents are both Quakers and that's uh, for Quakers, they've figured significantly in the history of the underground railroad they were some of the first abolitionists and really believed in equality so that aspect of their belief system really fascinated me and how that all works and so when they met they were in a pretty accepting environment yeah i mean they had a pretty i think unique or you know it wasn't the, the most common reaction their you know their families were both excited and supportive <laughs> so yeah they didn't have to face a lot of the the hate or, or negativity that a lot of interracial couples at that mm-hmm. time
0: faced. Yeah. And, yeah. and your, your work on the the underground railroad does deal with that. Of course, mm-hmm. the, the underground railroad itself, but also the way we remember things. And I, mm-hmm. and that is something that, that also interests me a lot, the way we memorialize things, the way we remember things, um, and how photography can supplant the actuality of something mm-hmm. or how photography Photography can remind us of maybe the reality of something in some ways, but but your uh, in um, i know in your work and photographing the, the the places of the underground railroad, you know either remnants or just just the sites themselves and things like that deals with both actual history and the sort of the the lore and the myth that happens over time right that
2: 's correct, and yeah, so a few things about it. when I first started the project, what it really hooked me was finding these places that you read about you could read about and go to that had these amazing histories you know both I mean shameful histories and also you know heroic stories attached to them Uh, but you could go to these places and they were totally disconnected from that history at the same time you know maybe it was now a parking lot or you know a fast food restaurant or what have you and so but still being in, the, in that spot, it, they still felt important to me. And to go with, to what you were saying, that idea of like how we memorialize and remember things really started to fascinate me. You know What we've chosen to enshrine, where there are monuments, where there aren't monuments for different things in our history, what's deemed important, what's not important to, to remember. Those, those ideas were central in my mind. And I decided to really try to focus on the places that were not remembered. Those were the ones that interested me the most, mm. so so basically all the the images in the in that project are not places you could go to and know that something um, you know important happened on that site right right and the other hard part about that project is you know trying to find places you can actually locate you know and actually physically yeah. get to the right place <laughs> you know and not just within a, a few mile radius but actually find the exact mm-hmm. spot and in terms of the mythology aspect of it, that also was really interesting to me how, you know, when I would talk about this project I was doing, everyone had a story about the Underground Railroad. Oh, there's something in my neighborhood. There's this, there's this hole under something in one of my neighbor's house. There's, there's a secret compartment here and there. Everyone had some little story that they were really excited to share. Did anyone claim to have actual railroad tracks? <laughs> no, no, actual <laughs> railroad tracks. <laughs> but it, it really spoke to and you know and the thing is probably it's really
0: hard to to verify any of these statements, and very few have been but but you know that that's the that's the lore of it too and and not necessarily um- a negative in the idea that people would want to claim that part of that history because they because they you know they they're moved by it because they feel the heroism of it they feel the um the importance of it right that's exactly right and that attracted me
2: as well. I, so I, I decided at first I wasn't going to include sites that couldn't be verified, but then I felt like, well, no, it's actually important to to include uh, sites that are suspected or that are of interest to people in different ways, because it does speak right to that desire to feel like uh, that we're a part of something and to to write history in that way. And so I, you know, I I have a. This huge Google Map where I have probably <laughs> five or six hundred locations of places I would, yes, you know, in my dreams love to check out right. and, and maybe photograph someday. But uh, you know, I write specifically, you know, if they're verified, if they're hearsay, you know, just just to sort of categorize them in different in different ways. Mm-hmm.
0: I can see, um, and we're, we'll get to the your your book, uh, the disappearance of Joseph Plummer. But I could mm-hmm. see the way you work also <laughs> entering that project. But but before right. we get there. Um, so uh when and why and how did you decide then you wanted to go on to get your MFA here at the School of Visual Arts?
2: Good question. I was you know so I was working at Magnum in the late 90s and from there started doing some of uh, some of my own uh editorial assignments. I was doing work with the with the Soros Foundation a lot. I was photographing a lot of music. It's funny when you start working as a freelance photographer you fall into these jobs that you, you know, you don't know how it happened, but then you're on a roll and I started putting a lot of hip hop somehow, you know, and I wasn't even, even something I really listened to growing up, but, um, I became a hip hop photographer for a while. Um, <laughs> and doing some annual report work, doing some portraiture, I did that for years, but I always kind of felt like I was trying to, it wasn't the natural outlet for my work. I was always trying to, um, guess what the client was wanting or, you know, seeing how I could serve what a client needed. And I kind of lost sight of what was important to me. And I found it hard to keep those two worlds separate, you know, photographing for myself and photographing for other people. I found it confusing. So I decided I wanted to try and stop photographing for other people and really spend some time to figure out what it was that was going to propel me and to sustain my interest in photography for a lifetime. And so After about 10 years in the freelance world, I decided to go back and get my MFA for those reasons. And I think an MFA is not really, you know, it's not necessary for everyone, you know, definitely not. I don't, you know, I think, you know, some people just, you know, could do very well in the academic environment and some people don't need it. You know, some people are pretty clear in Mm -hmm. their intentions and how they want to go about things because in college I didn't study art. At all. I also felt like it would be an interesting challenge to be in a place where a lot of people had different background than me. Yeah. So, my, you know, my background in photography was mainly self-taught and working at Magnum and then being a being a working photographer and not from an art background.
0: That's what I was going to ask. So you, you come from this uh, liberal arts education and then a real hands on kind of a, a place that that deals with, um, you know, documentary work and, and photojournalism. And then you come to an art school where there's much more conceptual work being made and conceptual discussions being had. And so what was that transition like for you? Just even to take a step back for a minute, when I was even when I was at Magnum,
2: I was always more interested in the people who were like Alex Webb, who were looking at the world, uh, the color, the light and transforming perspective, like how, you know, literally transforming the way you see the world, like by. The way they're framing and composing images, or the people who weren't pointing their image, their camera at the protest, but had you know, turned around and mm-hmm. were looking at the what was happening behind them. So I was always sort of drawn more towards I, you know, I guess the artistic side of that ex, the expression happening at Magnum. And so
0: sorry, and no, that that that's that's right along the the lines of what I was what we were getting to. And then you come here to SVA and it's um It's even more conceptual in nature.
2: Right. Right. And I thought that would be a really interesting challenge and perspective, you know, to have to reconcile those, those different experiences and to, and to really get a different perspective on a medium that I completely love. So it was all those things I, (laughs) right before I came to, to get my MFA, we, my wife and I had our first son, about two months before the program started. So it was (laughs) in some ways like... It was stress-free. Yeah, it was (laughs) in some ways not the ideal time to be starting and plunging into an MFA program. Um, So that combined with, you know, like you said, you know, uh, contending with people from different backgrounds, um, come from more of an arts education. The first semester was tough. First semester was definitely tough. But for me, the MFA experience was well worth it. It really helped me solidify... What I was interested in and how I wanted to like strategize and pursue the projects I'm interested in. So uh, it was it was it was a great experience for me.
0: What was your um your MFA work?
2: So my MFA work actually became my first book, Disquiet. I was taking a lot of images of. Well, I spent the first year. You know, you know your first year in the program, you kind of experiment with lots of different things. But one thing I was consistently doing. Was photographing my family, and it wasn't something I was, you know, really thinking about in terms of my MFA work necessarily. But I was, that's what you know, that's what I was interested in. That's what I was doing. You know, what does it mean to be a parent all of a sudden and to have this different kind of family, this different perspective on the world? And during that time, when I was in in the program, was also right after the Great Recession, so there was a the housing crisis, the housing crisis, right? So there was a severely depressed economy. There was a lot of political dysfunction. I mean, it, it pales in comparison to, <laughs> to what's happening now in some ways. But at the time, uh, you know, it was palpable. It was, it, people were very concerned. There was definitely a lot of pessimism and uncertainty about the future and where the country was headed. And it was also around the time that Occupy Wall Street started. And so that happened, I think, in the fall of my, uh, my second year in the, the thesis program. And I was really interested in that movement, not necessarily um, from a photographic perspective, but I was it, it had a lot of really amazing energy to it. It was also very loose. And I spent started spending a lot of time going down to Zuccotti Park mm-hmm. and just observing, looking, experiencing that. But one day I was down there and I was thinking, oh my goodness, it would be really amazing to try to create a project where the images of my family were sort of in a dialogue with with what was happening. In the country, so I started going down to Zuccotti Park more regularly and photographing some Occupy Wall Street, you know, just what was happening down there and in the surrounding area. And so that project became Disquiet, which is basically it's a, a, it's pro- a mix of
0: photos of, of I, well, I look through it, um, mm-hmm. and you know, it, it's this sort of outside and inside idea, exactly. and how all the the discomfort and the noise kind of connects everything. Your Correct. your life outside in the world and your life inside with your family. And and then you get that feeling as you as you scroll through the photographs. So with the way there's this this buzz almost, this noise that that's going on with the turmoil and, and everything. And and then the 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 anxiousness of being a new parent and, and a new family and all that.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly what it what it was. It was sort of, you know, it was trying to 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 resonate a feeling and a lot of my work deals with trying to sort of espouse these feelings, I would say that and I wanted to get to, to that idea of what I was feeling at the time by creating this sense of anxiety this buzz this inside outside there yeah there's a lot of cutting between scenes of being in the sort of general outside hmm. you know american society environment and then cutting into the family life and going back and forth or people inside looking out and playing with those those ideas of inside versus outside and but really also thinking about how what's happening around you affects you as a person in your family life. Yeah, so then, uh, how did that become a book? How did that become a book? Well, <laughs> yeah, this was, and this was the most important thing I think I learned as, you know, going back to saying that getting an MFA was important for me. What I learned really and what was crucial is that I wanted to work with books and that the book form was a, a really good place for me to um, solidify my statements and my ideas. Because the way I shoot is very sort of intuitively, I'm out in the world making images. Not really, for not for the most part. You know, the Underground Railroad project being different, but for the most part, when I'm carrying a you know a 35 millimeter camera or like a, a Mamiya Seven or something, I'm out and I'm just making images, not thinking much about why or what they're going to be. And then as the project develops, I start taking those pictures and spending just as much time as i had been shooting really trying to sequence them and you know group them and inform them into these coherent statements and so that's what i learned to do in my second year Mm. of uh, of the program at sva i mean i I had originally you know originally i was thinking oh no you know they're just going to be on the wall they're going to be in these different arrangements and then you know, it seems so obvious now, but I was like, oh, maybe it should be a book, you know. <laughs> and I and I was got really excited about that idea and never looked back. And so I spent a good part of that, a good six months working on editing. At one point, I had this really kind of, which I now feel like stu- was a stupid idea of, <laughs> you know, having these four different chapters. And mm-hmm. each was going to be very separate, oh, okay. you know, exploring mm-hmm. this idea. But once once I started combining and juxtaposing the images, that's when things really started to take off. And I think a lot of my work in that book and in my my newest work is about that idea of uh, creating dia- dialogues between images that don't at first seem similar.
0: Do you work alone? Do you do you work with your wife? Do you work... Uh, how does that... Ha- what's and, and, the process like? The process of editing or, yeah. or creating editing the Editing and creating the book, yeah. Uh,
2: generally, it's alone. Uh, you know, I was... I was lucky enough to be, you know, when I was in school to be working to have some really great resources around me, um, particularly Marvin Heiferman, who is uh, my thesis form teacher. He mm-hmm. helped you. That was the person who helped you uh, formulate your ideas and write about them, but was also, you know, checking in to see how things are going with the work. And so he was a great resource um, that that's that last semester and he helped um, with some ideas. I also took a class in bookmaking that 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 semester, which was very helpful. But a lot of it is really alone is sitting alone. And that's the nerve wracking thing, right? You spend all this time alone. Sitting there, coming up with these ideas, and then you got to show them to someone to see if they make any if they right. make any sense whatsoever.
0: <laughs> you hit a, a point of exhaustion too of looking at your oh, work, right. where you're like, I'm just not sure anymore. I just don't know. I need to yeah. Be- and
2: that's that's actually one of the strangest things and best things about school is that you're doing things at this, this very accelerated pace, and you have these deadlines that you have to hit. So there isn't a lot of time to step back, get some perspective, and come dive back in. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, it's great to have those, those, uh, deadlines <laughs> because I think as an artist yes. we all know sometimes, <laughs> you know, yes. and for me now, I even, I even have to go back to that idea a lot and say, okay, well now I need to apply for that grant or that whatever it may be. And then mm-hmm. that helps you finish something that has right. been, that you've, you've been letting sit for too long.
0: <laughs> so then, uh, you graduate SVA. Yeah. Um, when do you start working on uh, the disappearance of Joseph Plummer?
2: Well, when I graduated SVA, I had a, a prototype for Disquiet, which I I then took oh, okay. like three or right. four months to sort of right. refine and mm-hmm. and spend some time with getting some perspective and diving back into that work. And and uh, the next year, published that book. And then for the newest book that I've just put out, the the disappearance of Joseph Plummer, that really started in about 2010. In some mm. ways. But again, with most of my projects, it's not always knowing that they've started. Right. No, it's not right. like a, I've started. Uh, I'm going to work for ten months and then I'm going to. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I have always been. Ta- I've always been taking images in the the landscape in New Hampshire. That um, it's a place that there's some property up there that my family owns, which I've been going to my whole life. Oh. Since okay. I was about four years old. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh. And so. I'm I'm always is that like making the, sort my, my, of the vacation a, home in a way or the just sort a, of it was about uh, an hour and a half north of Boston. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I mean, my my dad actually spent, you know, some of my earliest memories were of my dad designing and, and building a house there by himself over uh a couple of summers. Mm-hmm. And so we would go up up there, we'd camp in the woods. And one of my first memories too is um There was a lot of squeaking one night and we were we were camping out in the woods and woke up and this these field mice had given birth in our luggage. (laughs) So so we spent so we spent, you know, the we'd go up for two or three weeks at a time, camp out, Uh and my dad would work on building this house and, you know, see who he could convince to come up and Mm -hmm. and help him. Putting some nails and uh, uh, did you float learn any logs. construction
0: uh, during that time? I mean, I was a little young. You were young, right? Yeah. I, mean, I mean,
2: curiously enough, that is the other thing I do now is I as I work on rehabbing houses. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh. So wow. yeah, there are a lot of a lot of similarities, and yeah. you know, from I think you know watching my dad build a house and having that
0: interest in... Would it often be just you and your dad up there? The... Uh,
2: no, it would be my dad. I have a younger brother mm. and my mother
0: as well. Mm-hmm. What they're, does your younger the brother characters.
2: do? He's a lawyer. Oh, okay. <laughs> not in the arts at all, right?
0: <laughs> Is there yeah. any uh, tension, any uh, competition there?
2: <laughs> no, not none whatsoever. Actually, we're so different, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> in terms of what we do, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Does he still live up? Uh, he lives he in actually in Fort Greene. Oh, okay. So in, in Brooklyn.
0: Wow. Yeah. So you both came down to Brooklyn.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. A lot of people who grew up in Cambridge with us. Have somehow ended up in New York, in Brooklyn, hmm. and it seems like the new the new place to be,
0: right? I guess everyone's in Brooklyn. So. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's not that crazy. Yeah. So then, um, you, you grew so you grew up with this place, and, and what turns out to be the a, a cabin that your father builds, and uh, you, you you go up there with your family and all, and then it's much later when you discover this this sort of a uh, myth and uh, an actual story. Yeah, yeah. So the the land that we have
2: up there is off a road called Hermit Woods Road, and it's on a lake called Hermit Lake, and there's a big swatch of land right there called Hermit Woods. Huh. And, you know, since it was part of my life since I was four, it's nothing, Christ, I, really, it? right. yeah, it's nothing yeah. I really ever thought about. And and then one, one uh, summer in about 2010, I started getting curious about, well, wait a minute, is there actually... You know who w- was there? An actual hermit? Why is you know why do we ha- why do these places have these names? And we have some friends up there that we've made over the years who live up there year round. And I was asking one of them, this woman uh, Bridget, about the the, the names and the Hermit Woods and Hermit Lake, and she said, "Well, yeah, there actually is this man Joseph Plummer who went off into the woods up here and." You can actually hike and find his grave. It's really hard to find, but you know she asked around and was able to find some people who could tell us how to get there. And so we we did that initial trek. I did that with my father, and I started researching uh, into this man more. There was very little information about him. Uh, there were some firsthand accounts from he was he was born in 1774 and died in like 1862, 1863, something like that. So there were some firsthand accounts that the historical society, the local histori- historical society had about his life, but there wasn't a lot of information about him. There were some newspaper articles hmm. and the historical society have some, has some belongings that were supposedly his. But what was really interesting about this was that there just, there were these fragmented pieces of his life. And you couldn't really get a sense of him from it, and because of that, I think is what that's what fuels right. the mythology.
0: And what what was the nature of the idea of you know that he w- he appeared in newspapers or or stories and things like that that you were able to find records on him? Why?
2: Right. So even even back in the eighteen hundreds, people were fascinated with this idea that mm-hmm. this man. Who had come from this town of probably around a hundred people at that time, and he just decided he needed to leave society, right, and go off into the woods. And so he became local, this local legend, even back then. And people were fascinated about him and wrote about stories about him. They interviewed local townspeople about who he was, and you know, people had some stories that were often contradictory. And uh, so there was it was really hard to get a sense of who this person was. You know, even. I think I found a clipping from a, a newspaper in Washington State that wow. had even written an article, a little article about this man, and and what what fascinated people about him was that you know they couldn't get a sense of him, and I think that's what continues to fascinate people about him is that because there's very little information about him, it it, it fuels the mythology.
0: It's really it's really interesting because you have to imagine back then communication was very slow. The idea of knowing someone in a different state, you know, was unusual, right. things like that. And and it's not like this guy was producing something that everyone was interested in or was, in, you know, as a war hero or something, you know, it, it's really an interesting. And that's, and to me, that is the, the big irony in
2: all this. And And <laughs> is that he, in the act of wanting to be alone and disappearing, yes. <laughs> he actually became famous. Right. And that's, uh, you know, that's such, that's such an interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he made himself uh, famous
0: by <laughs> and, accident. And survived history now. And survived yeah, history, yeah. yeah. You know, and so um, I did get to see um, a sort of a preview of the book mm-hmm. online. And, and the book is out now, or? Yeah, it's out. It's been out for about a week and a half now. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. You know, you, you go through the book. It, it is um, a lot of different sort of artifacts and photographs. And some of it f- seems factual, and some of it seems a little more sort of fantasy or um, your interpretation of something and things like that. And mm-hmm. and some of it looks like it belongs on a, a bulletin board with a lot of red strings attaching pieces and parts and things like that. It feels very investigative. So it's actually a, a fun, also fun series to sort of just go through and look through and make connections and things. But the other thing that really fascinated me, uh, was fascinating to me about the the exploration of this is how you did this with your father as well, and how it's connected to your father as well. And I feel like it's also, a, it seems like almost a, an exploration of your relationship with your father as well throughout this book.
2: Yeah, I think you've summed it up all pretty, pretty well there. I mean, yeah, that was, I, w- I was intent on trying to create a, a, a project that was in fragments, and that someone could try and piece together and that's kind of how I was experiencing it myself as I was finding these fragments and trying to piece them together and so you know I, I really through this project came to firmly believe that when you experience something in fragments, it actually increases the potential for narrative possibilities and as a viewer, I think that's really exciting because there are no there's some there's a lot of clues there's little pieces of information, but as a viewer, you have to do some work and create your own narrative in it, within it too. And, and that really interested me. My dad is, is not someone who feels very comfortable in front of the camera at all, so that was something that we had to, to work with. And you know it, it played into him sort of representing this hermit role as well, because he is someone who does not like the spotlight mm-hmm. and wouldn't mm-hmm. want to be in the spotlight. But yeah, in doing the project, what I realized along the way was well my goodness you know this this hermit had land basically where my dad built this this cabin i mean if you look at the deed hmm. it's joseph plummer had this land and then when he died it was dispersed to many of his relatives
0: it, so the there's a copy of the deed at the back mm. of the book right that's yeah. not a spoiler is it <laughs> no, that, <laughs> okay. that's fine yeah
2: <laughs> and it, it so the, it, the land could actually be traced back to this original hermit and so What was fascinating to me was that, you know, hundreds of years later, my dad had come to see this, this patch of land in New Hampshire and said, okay, this is where I need to build my, my cabin for my retreat away from the world. Mm. And so I started seeing a lot of parallels in their stories and, you know, how they had a, a similar view and like respect for nature and its sublime power and wanted to, um, that was, that was the hardest part of The story was how how to take their two experiences and put them together in a way that didn't feel
0: totally uh disjointed Mm
2: -hmm. you know
0: right yeah or contrived uh, yeah like this is the idea i've had i'm gonna try to make it fit this or exactly did you feel like you learned something about your father through the process (laughs) that's a that's a tough one my dad is a very (laughs) private man Uh um you know, we,
2: we've spent a lot of time hiking through the woods together in the last three or four years, often in silence. But my dad is, he's an epidemiologist, so he's a scientist. Um, but I would say that being in nature is the closest he'll be to being spiritual. Like he has, he loves being there. You know, you can just see it's infectious when he, when he's spending time in the woods. So yeah, I got a lot closer to him doing this during this project but it wasn't through discussion really necessarily it was right. it was through just uh, shared experiences
0: yeah yeah just spending all that time together exactly just uh, being able to talk about something even if it's not personal right? right yeah and and the thing is you know as time as he gets
2: older you know he wants to spend more and more time up there as well so he's i mean now now it's all summer all some you know every year he spends a whole summer there is he and by himself or my mom's there oh, okay. some of the time as well mm-hmm. but he spends more and more time alone in that, in that landscape. Mm. Wow. Which is interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, I think is, about, well, is he, how is he
0: inhabiting the spirit? Is the spirit inhabiting? Him? Right. I think about it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and then, you know, and then I think about how it's become actually a more, and more and more important place for me mm. as I've gotten older as well. And I've started bringing my own kids there and, oh, nice. you know, they look forward to, to getting there in the summer as well and kind of just disappearing. So it's, yeah. it's great.
0: What do you have planned for uh, the book and the book tour and all that? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, it just came out. We're going to, I think we'll be,
2: we're doing something in Paris in a few weeks. Oh, nice. And that'll be one of the, the launches there. And then something in Boston in the spring, there should be uh, an event as well. Um, and probably it's going to, we're just starting to talk about doing some shows and there'll probably be a, be a few shows as well next mm-hmm. in, in 2018.
0: We talked about you did Disquiet and you did the Underground uh, Railroad and you've talked about race and being biracial mm-hmm. and all that. Does, um, does any uh, of that idea of... Um, Sort of wanting to get lost, wanting to not be found, sort of work into ideas of alienation about who you are and how you identify and, and all that?
2: Actually, it's a great question. I think it's really connected to how I experience the world and, what, and how I create my work, but it's a little different than alienation. I would say that growing up as a mixed race child, um, there were a lot of times people always wanted me to choose, wait, so are you black? Are you white? Are you this or you that? They really people really feel the need to put things in the categories and yeah. have things very tidy.
0: Fit a narrative and fit a narrative,
2: else. yeah. And I really sort of revolted from that idea. I felt very comfortable in the ambiguity of being just who I was, you know, no, I'm not black, I'm not white, I'm not this or that, I'm just me. And I could see that that made people uncomfortable in some ways, too. (laughs) But that's how I felt most comfortable. And that's but I think it's really translated also into the kind of photography that I want to make and that I enjoy looking at is that life is complicated. Identity is complicated. I want my projects to also be complicated. You know, sometimes I shoot in a way that could look documentary, but it's not documentary work, you know, and. So I, I kind of hope that it sort of defies classification mm-hmm. as well. No, I think it does. <laughs> you yeah. know, and that's, <laughs> yeah, um, that's not on purpose. That's just sort of natural, naturally how it how it comes out. But I don't feel the need to say, okay, well, I'm this kind of photographer, or that kind of photographer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think. So I think that experience, right? It's, it's been it's central to how I how I want to make art.
0: Yeah. So uh, what are you working on uh, now? <laughs> well, this yeah, we just got this uh, finished and.
2: You know, it's been a crazy year, right, in our country with...
0: So I, that's, uh, that was a, a thought I had. It's like, is it time for Disquiet too? <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. I mean, um, I've definitely been thinking more about... I think the next project I'm going to be working on is going to be probably more political in nature. There are some ideas I have about the idea of freedom in popular culture and the road. And I'm going to be exploring ideas of race with uh, the metaphor of the road in a project that I've just started. So hmm. I'm, I'm looking forward to jumping into that probably just after the new year, Drive, diving full, <laughs> full speed into that um, pretty soon. Is that something um,
0: uh, you would do locally or travel around for? Or?
2: I, it would require some significant travel. Mm. <laughs> so We'll see. So yeah, I'll have to negotiate that with uh, the family and everything right. too. And see. <laughs> but yeah, no, it would. Yeah. Um, but I, I already have a conceptual framework for it, so I'm excited. Yeah, I kind of know what I want to do. Mm-hmm. with that project and so that's I guess one way my practice has really changed you know since before being in school and while I still do shoot intuitively for a lot of things I I do have a lot more conceptual ideas of things I want to yeah. I want to approach
0: also um having kids or a kid one mm-hmm. kid two kids uh, two uh, kids two kids having kids um makes you um Plan your time a little bit more. And <laughs> yes. uh, so you, you don't want to get out there and waste a lot of time. Yeah. That's right. Do you, have, do you have kids? I do. I have two as well. So yeah. you know. Yes, exactly. Um, did you mention your wife's name? I'm sorry. I don't uh, know. My wife's name is Allie. Did, uh, what does she do for a living? She's actually in digital marketing.
2: Mm. So trying to figure out what people are doing and thinking. Mm-hmm. About any kind of particular topic yeah
0: and and you're doing do you do editorial work as well and
2: I, not as much as I used to, mm-hmm. you know here and there, as I mentioned earlier, my seeing my dad build that house sort of rubbed off on me and and that's I, I rehab some buildings as well that's how i
0: like uh, buildings that are being flipped or buildings that are
2: uh, were- buildings that I'm, uh, you know, either have someone who's hiring me to. Oh,
0: okay. So real, like a real job doing construction work. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And I I noticed from your work, I had some questions for you too. Sure. You know, as opposed to someone like me, who's who, who I said sort of shoots very intuitively, not really thinking about it when I'm shooting. Seems I've always admired people who seem to kind of kind of be able to go out and have have this idea in their head and kind of just execute. You know that idea and, and and shooting it in a very sort of thorough and yeah. consistent way. So, so I, was I have a, about your process as well.
0: I have a I think what I call like a, a short intuitive primer, uh-huh. right? Where okay. There's just some, maybe just the beginnings of, of something I want to do, but but I need to wander around and and shoot it for a while before I really know what I'm doing. Uh, so there, there's a little bit of both in there. Gotcha. Um, and it and sometimes it's. a year before I I might even really understand what I'm doing. And and I brought up the idea of how we remember and how we memorialize, because that has been sort of very large on my mind. Uh, I've spent years photographing the remnants or the disappearance of the Morris Canal, which was this incredibly important artery, you know, bringing coal from Pennsylvania to New York and clear across New Jersey and what happened to that space. And you know in, in i remember in jersey city it was in some spots it was the last open space and so it might become affordable housing or football fields for high schools or things like that um, and then as you get sort of to more affluent areas it's a park with a jog run and, and part of the canal is still there and, and then in between it's it's a mall or it's a you know a little shopping center or something like that right. and and so that yeah that's why those things interest me it's like what when these things no, are no longer useful you know what becomes of them yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, i think it's always
2: really interesting to learn about other photographers processes and how mm-hmm. they their work yeah um ha, ha, has the state of the world in the last year affected how you've thought about your work at all and how you see yourself in relation to your work or uh, things you want to
0: yeah shoot and so shoot? um i i am thinking about it a lot uh and and not like um i'm taking this political side taking th- that political side i, I try to to be somewhat um, apolitical, mm-hmm. especially with with this show and all, you know, I wanted, I don't want it to be a, a show about politics. It's hard to avoid, of course, because, and especially in art, it's hard to, and and I'm open to talking about things and all, but yeah, I I, I am thinking about you know something that that does involve how people are coping with what you know, what the world is like today and what, what we, what the country is going through today and and just how incredibly charged everything is today and how sensitive everybody is to anything on social media. And so that, that is something I've been thinking about a lot and how that could be visual. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's a tough one. Um, I've also been photographing the Passaic River and much in this In a similar vein to the Mars Canal, because, again, it's another one of these sort of arteries of capitalism and, and, you know, where it is now and the cleanup and the environmental cleanup and things like that. But it's, uh, yeah, you know, having the family, doing the show. I'm running a gallery in Trenton and teaching full time. It's, uh, it's, I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) And it's only, what? what Right. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm really curious to see the kind of projects people are going to start putting out in the next year or so. You know, after just, because sort of like we were talking about with this quiet, you know, when you have, we're all living in the world, but we're being very heavily influenced, Mm -hmm. you know, by the things that are happening around us. And I'm just, I'm kind of curious to see if there's any trends that that come out with the kind of projects people are. How it will translate. Yeah. Yeah. And not even totally explicitly, Mm -hmm. but. Know, just on maybe on a more psychological or emotional level, or right? Right, right, really curious to see and track that and see what happens,
0: right? Um, you know, because it did happen after 9 11, right? There was right. A, a level of anxiety and anxiousness and uh withdrawal and, and all kinds of things I started seeing in my students' photography mm-hmm. real uncertainty, a lot of darkness. I remember, you know, for a long period of time after that, yeah, right. I remember right after the election you know, just seeing
2: on Instagram and Twitter and mm-hmm. Facebook people, artist friends, you know, just posting like, oh my goodness, I can't, how can I make art now? Or how can I make art about anything but, right. you know, what's going on? But, you know, life, you know, in some ways our lives go on and and people get back to what they were doing, but yeah. but with probably some maybe adjustments, even if they're not thinking about them.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, uh, history is repetitive. And, and so uh, there might be a more current topic, but the the concept behind the work might be the same in some ways, like disquiet, you know, like, right, right. So, yeah, so uh, if people want the book, how should they go about getting it? Um, So the best ways to do
2: it at the moment are from uh, my publisher, which is at overlaps.com, a really great new publisher out of London who is doing some really terrific books. Mm. People should definitely make sure to check out their site. Okay. they, You know, it can be gotten also at PhotoEye, I think they have some signed copies there, and nice. you know, last but not least, hopefully not through Amazon, but but <laughs> Amazon as well. Um, yeah, we were at, this is actually the number one selling book on PhotoWire last week. Oh, that's we awesome! Were that's fantastic. Pleasantly surprised? So. Yeah,
0: that's great. Oh yeah, I mean, is everybody pretty excited uh, about the book? Yeah, we are. The, it's the been the getting, family and the parents, yeah. and yeah, we've we've been
2: really happy with it so far. It's been getting. Uh, some good feedback, and uh, we're really happy
0: with, with how it turned out. Yeah, well, I mean, I really enjoyed looking at it online, and I will get my copy of it. <laughs> right, signed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> nice. nice. And so uh, where are you on social media?
2: Um, I'm on uh, mainly uh, Instagram. Mm-hmm. and What's your uh, name? Adamani Willett. <laughs> All right. And also on Facebook.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, same thing, Adamani Willett. Yep. Nice. Well, thank you very much. This has been great.
2: This has been terrific. Thanks for having
0: me. All right. Bye, everyone. <laughs>